We are going to look at a parable this evening. I had Richard read back into chapter 17 so we can get the full context of what Jesus is talking about. But I am going to read the parable once again, verses 1 through 8, just so it's fresh in our minds. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? Well, our our world in 2022 like every other year that has gone before it, is a world of injustice. On average, there are 25,000 murders in the United States annually, and approximately half of them will go unsolved. That means every month, 1,000 murderers are never brought to justice, month after month, year after year. This year alone, there were thousands of children who were abducted. Some were returned safely, some were found deceased, but the majority will remain a mystery never to be seen again. This increase in abduction is directly related to the increase uh, in crimes related to human trafficking, which has become an ever-growing evil as the reality of this dark, sinful underworld within our own country is coming to light more and more. Without question, this is also directly related to how sexually perverse of a culture we have become. Pornography, which was once relegated to seedy bookstores, is now accessible on every computer and smartphone without restriction. This sin then bleeds into other areas of life, distorting how men and women view their own bodies, how they perceive the opposite sex, and how they think about God's very good design of the covenantal one flesh union. This objectification of sex fuels the fashion industry, which seduces women, all in the name of fashion, to dress more and more provocatively to wear the kind of clothing that would have gotten a woman arrested a hundred years ago for indecency. This all affects our children who are being introduced to sex at a younger and younger age. 
young minds being inundated with perverse and unnatural ideas about sexuality, robbing them of their innocence. Inviting them to question the very foundation of gender and identity. Introducing them into a world of confusion and immorality that no child should have to think about. All the while professing it to be good. Then there's the breakdown of the family. The idea of the stable family with a father and mother to guide, discipline, and instruct is becoming a relic of the past. Broken and unstable homes are no longer rare as children are raised without the God-ordained structure they require. Our educational systems are broken, churning out scores of students who earn a diploma and yet do not have the basic life skills to be self-governing or hardworking. And more and more are heading toward either self-destruction or those who are completely dependent on the state. Crime continues to rise as more laws are introduced to mitigate the consequences Reducing felonies to misdemeanors to help alleviate an overcrowded prison system. The political climate in our nation is one of constant turmoil. The gulf between parties has never been greater, with more division and malice than has ever seen before in our history, even more than the time of the Civil War. Every time you turn on the news, every time you pick up the newspaper, every time you read the headlines on the internet, you are confronted with how broken everything is. How terribly broken it all is. And that's just in our so-called secular world. Things pertaining to the church are not looking that good either. The number of people who attend weekly services are dwindling. Young people more and more are being swept away by the philosophies of this age, abandoning the faith of their parents to pursue a world without God. There are false teachers, cults, and schisms cropping up all over the place. And Christians who actually hold to a biblical worldview are becoming harder and harder to find. Religious polls regularly reveal that the majority of Christians are unable to articulate and defend basic Christian doctrine. And you take this all in and you grieve. And there is a deep inward longing to see everything made right. There is a deep inward longing to see God's truth prevail, and everything to be as it ought to be. And it's not like you are blameless in the midst of this brokenness. You also recognize your inward corruption. If you are in Christ, yours is a daily struggle to overcome the sin that remains and to pursue a life of holiness. And that in and of itself can be a frustrating enterprise. You are constantly hitting a wall as you try to do good. You're constantly finding resistance as you think 
as you seek to think rightly and to speak rightly and to do rightly. And such resistance comes from within. You, the one who is trying to do good. Sometimes you feel like you're moving in the wrong direction. Maybe you feel that you loved God more in the past than you do today. Maybe you are experiencing a season of spiritual laziness and you just find constant discouragement as you reflect upon your relationship with God. And so there's this brokenness without and there's this brokenness within. And in a word, it is all so disheartening. Our fight is against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And this threefold resistance often seems so powerful that your day-to-day experience feels like losing. You look upon the perverse philosophies of the world. You look upon the modern state of the church. You look upon your own inward corruption and your heart becomes easily weighed down. Perhaps you wonder if God's kingdom will ever come. Perhaps you wonder if this kingdom that has begun on earth in the coming of Jesus will ever fully materialize. Or if the persistent evil that dominates our day will claim victory in the end. Sometimes it seems that way. You read about a God of power, You hear of His promises and His plans for the future, but you are tempted to wonder if He's really at work at all. If He even hears your prayers at all. You pray and pray and things don't seem to be getting better and sometimes it seems like things just get worse. We saw a few weeks ago, back in chapter 17, verse 22, if you will look there. Jesus said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. In other words, the days are coming, dark days, evil days, when you will long to see Jesus ruling over the nations. You will long for just one day to see everything made right the way it ought to be. You long for the King to come to His kingdom and set everything straight. But Jesus tells the disciples and He tells you, you do not see it. The day is coming when He will return and transform the entire earth and we long for that day. But like the disciples in the first century, We do not see it. And it can be so discouraging. It can be so disheartening. As we transition into Luke chapter 18, the subject matter remains the same. Jesus has been talking about His return, and at the end of chapter 17, He describes this separation that's going to take place. He's going to separate the unrighteous from the righteous. He says it's going to be like the days of Noah. It's going to be like the days of Lot. There will be separation. 
There will be judgment. And this must take place before He establishes His everlasting kingdom. And as the disciples would long for His return, we find ourselves longing for His return. And that produces, or has the potential to produce in us, a weary heart. A discouraged heart. And so Jesus transitions right in to chapter 18, verse 1. There's no chapter breaks in the original. And so it's the same setting. Verse 1, he says, it says, He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Now, Scripture is to be read in context. It's always important that you read it considering what is surrounding it because if you were just to read this parable on its own, you would think Jesus is teaching a parable on prayer. But when you consider the passage before this, you recognize it's not just a parable about prayer but it's a parable about prayer in light of His second coming. It's a parable about Jesus bringing His kingdom to the earth and establishing justice. And this can be clearly seen when you drop down to verse 8 where He talks about God bringing justice someday. He says, I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily, those who are praying Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? He's talking about His second coming. He's never stopped talking about His second coming. And so the parable is not only about enduring in prayer, as we will see, but it has a specific focus in that they are prayers related to the Son of Man returning and prayers for us experiencing justice in this life. Prayers that are to God to make everything as they ought to be in this life. Well, let's read through the parable and talk about it. We find that there are two main characters. The first is a judge. Jesus calls him the unrighteous judge in verse 8. And as we will discover, that is a very appropriate title. Notice verse 2, our introductory description. It says, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Now let's stop right there. This most likely would have been a paid magistrate appointed by either Herod or the Romans to handle some of Israel's legal issues. Remember, Israel is dominated by Roman occupation, but the Romans did not want to waste their time and resources dealing with the problems of the Jews. And so they would appoint magistrates to work out some of their cases so that they did not have to get involved. The only exception would be in the area of capital punishment. So this is most likely an appointed official who would hear cases 
and make decisions on behalf of the people. But what we discover about this man is that he is unqualified to be a judge. There are two main qualifications for a judge that are necessary if there is going to be actual justice. One, there must be a fear of God. And two, there must be a concern for man. A judge is to act with the recognition that he is carrying out justice that was given by a higher authority. And he must have a concern for the welfare of the people that he presides over. But this man would be disqualified on both of those counts. When Jesus highlights what it is to keep God's law, he said it can be boiled down to two commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. This man has love for neither. Now, lest you think he's being mischaracterized, he even refers to himself in this way. If you look down in verse 4, he even admits to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man. So this is not someone who is self-deceived into thinking he is doing good to the people. This is a man who is totally aware of his lack of concern to provide appropriate justice. He simply doesn't care. This is a man who has no desire to accomplish anything other than his own self-interests. He is cold and indifferent to the needs of his fellow man, and because he does not fear God, he has no motivation to help anyone but himself. And sadly, in this fallen world, there are probably many judges like this, whose only incentive is either to promote themselves or to use their position to further some political agenda. Now, what a contrast to how God describes the role of a judge in the Old Testament. In 2 Chronicles 19, the good king of Judah was appointing judges throughout the land, And in 2 Chronicles 19, 6 and 7, he says to them, Consider what you do, for you judge not for man, but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God, or partiality, or taking bribes. So that was the Old Testament qualification according to God's law for a judge. But because this is a man who does not love God or neighbor, he is totally indifferent to the needs around him. He himself acts as a judge for the people, but he himself ought to be judged. So that is character number one in the story, the unjust judge. The second character is found in verse 3. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. Now we know from many places in Scripture that life as a widow in the first century was a very arduous existence. 
If there was not a close male relative in the life of a widow, it was like a death sentence. She could not own property, nor could she work. She was helpless and dependent. We get a glimpse of this in the book of Ruth, if you remember, when Ruth and Naomi return to Israel, and they return to Israel to find a kinsman redeemer. In other words, to find a male relative who would take them in and care for them. And so they, Ruth is pictured going through the fields and she's gathering the leftover grain that wasn't harvested and she's bringing that home to Naomi and that is what they are living upon and we recognize that that would be very difficult. So they were vulnerable and because they were vulnerable, God's law had much to say about providing for Widows. Three people in society, you see this in the Old Testament, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, and God wanted protection for all three of them because they were the most likely to be taken advantage of. I'll give you a couple examples in, in the law. Exodus twenty two twenty two. God says, You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Very strong, clear language. Or the prophet Isaiah, as he is calling the nation to repentance is Isaiah 1.16. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Or in Psalm 68.5, poetically, God is described as father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in His holy habitation. So it's no secret if anyone in the first century had read the Old Testament, had heard the Old Testament taught, God had a special heart for widows. In fact, one of the indictments that Jesus has against the Pharisees, you remember, he says they devour widows' houses and for a pretense they make long prayers. In other words, they persuade and seduce widows to surrender their property to their religious system and then they offer these big lavish prayers over them to try to cover up their criminal activity. They had no male defenders. They had none who would protect them or take up their cause. And so that's the situation here. The reason that this woman goes before the court by herself is because she has no male relative to defend her. She has no husband. She has no son. She has no brother. All she has is the hope that she will be given justice by the hands of through the hands of this judge. But he's not going to give her justice. 
we know what kind of man he is. And so based on verse 3, we find out that her only recourse is persistence. She is not going to give up until she gets what she wants. Notice verse 3. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. Now, kept coming is in the imperfect tense in the Greek, which according to the Greek grammar, means continuous, ongoing, or repeated action in the past. Thus, the imperfect tense often portrays an action as one which happens over and over. So, this is a woman who is not taking no for an answer. She has no other options. She has no other recourse. If she does not get justice, she is doomed and she knows it. This is probably a situation where a judge could be bribed because he's that kind of man. But she does not even have the resources to do that. All she has is her pleading and her persistence. And so that is what she does. She comes to him over and over and over. The parable continues in verse 4. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. So her persistence finally pays off. Not because the judge was becoming sympathetic, but because he was becoming exhausted. And here Jesus gives us a window into his thought process. The judge rehearses the whole scenario to himself again revealing his commitment to his own self-interest. And he confesses inwardly, I don't fear God. I don't respect man. And he gives her justice because he wants to remove the burden that she has become to him because she's wearing him out. This is just another way for him to serve himself, of course. The ESV says, this widow keeps bothering me. The New King James, this widow troubles me. But neither one of those translations is adequate to bring forth the colorful word picture from the original language. The word literally means to blacken the eye. In other words, this woman is pummeling him with her daily requests and he can't take it anymore. She's wearing him out. You can picture her in line day after day. Maybe the judge notices her and he says, oh no, not again. 
Here she is again and again and again. And so what does a person do who is wholly wholly committed to his own self-interest? Whose main priority is to promote his own ease and to minimize his own suffering? He will give her what she wants. And so he finally surrenders and he says, I will give her justice. Not because he's righteous. Not even because he's concerned about his reputation. But because he is emotionally exhausted by her. She has blackened his eye. And then Jesus gives the meaning of the parable. Verse 6. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? That's the answer. Now there's been much confusion about what this parable is intended to teach and so I want to address that first. Some misinterpret this parable to mean that if we keep bugging God, He's eventually going to give us what we ask for. If we, like this vulnerable widow, just keep coming to Him over and over and over again, just like this judge who surrenders to her requests, God will surrender to yours. You just need to wear him down. That would be a really bad conclusion to draw from this parable. This is not a parable of comparison. This is a parable of contrast. Many of the parables are parables of comparison. The kingdom of God is like this. But a parable of contrast intends to show us that what Jesus is describing is not the way the kingdom of God operates. So the unjust judge is intended to communicate the opposite of what God is like. This is important. Jesus is not saying that God is like the unrighteous judge who is finally going to surrender because you are like the persistent widow, and you finally bring him to a breaking point. Rather, it is a lesser to the greater argument. If an unrighteous judge who is cold and indifferent to human needs will give justice when he is finally fed up, how much more will a righteous and good judge Give justice to those whom he loves. Do you see the contrast? You have an unrighteous judge who couldn't care less, contrasted with a righteous and loving judge who couldn't care more. He couldn't care more. 
And so it's a parable of contrast. And this is, helps us understand why Luke says in verse 7, give justice to His elect. It's the only time Luke uses this word in his Gospel or in the book of Acts. It appears one time right here. Why does Luke say, and will not God give justice to His elect, rather than say, give justice to His people, to His believers, to His disciples? Why does He choose the word elect? And I think it's because He wants to communicate the level of God, God's love for His people And so he doesn't point to our believing or our following, but he points to God's electing grace where he set his love on you before the world began. In other words, Luke brings up this doctrine of election to communicate that God has loved his people longer than they have loved him. And if God has loved His people longer than they have loved Him, then He is acting in their best interests, totally unlike the selfish judge who acts in his own self-interests. He has chosen you. He has loved you with an everlasting love. And He is the exact opposite of the character in this parable. The widow may have been forgotten by her culture, but God has not forgotten you. The widow has been disregarded by this judge, but God would never disregard you. And when He gives justice to His elect, it is not grudgingly. It is joyfully. Look at verse 7 again. Jesus asks two rhetorical questions. And will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? The answer is yes, He will. Will He delay long over them? No, He will not. So the idea is not that we wear God down with our pleadings, but to recognize that unlike the unjust judge, who would only surrender to a person's persistence, God is willing to give justice and to do so speedily. He is not giving good things to you grudgingly. He is not thinking as the unjust judge, oh no, here she comes again. I just can't bear her praying the same prayer again and again. Rather, God is eager to receive your prayers. He is zealous to answer your prayers. And the whole point of the parable is that we are to pray with persistence because He is that kind of God. Not to wear God down, but we pray knowing to whom we pray so that we do not lose heart so that we do not look at the world around us and the corruption within us and be heavy-hearted and discouraged. 
We pray with the knowledge that God loves us completely, and rather than being selfishly committed to his own self-interests, he operates always keeping your best interests in mind. In your experience, does it always seem that way? In your experience, as you go through this life, does it always seem like that's the case? Because in my experience, it doesn't always seem like that's the case. Sometimes you long to have your needs met. You long to have God answer this prayer. You long to have your sanctification more complete. And yet year after year, it seems that things sort of remain the same. But the point of the parable is it's not because you have a God who is cold and indifferent to your needs. Nor do you have a God who has no desire to give you justice. But that there is a contrast between this judge and the way God operates. And he loves and cares for those who come to him with his needs, with their needs. And any perceived delay on the part of God is not because He's unwilling to give you justice. In fact, God is presently at work in your life bringing about justice. It says justice here, righteousness. But it doesn't always look the way we think it's supposed to look. Some of the prayers that you pray, God is at work in, but it will take decades to come to fruition. Do you realize that? Do you pray for holiness? Do you pray that you would have holy speech, that you would uh, not think the thoughts that you do, or sometimes say the things that you say, or have outbursts of anger the way that you have? And, And do you realize that God is at work in those areas of your life, and yet it takes often decades for those things to come to fruition. But it it is not a God who is indifferent to your needs. It is a God who is at work and who is bringing those things about speedily. In other words, He's rushing to meet your needs. He's not indifferent as the judge who does not want to meet your needs. He's not slow to give justice. His response is never delayed. But the work of God often takes time. I think of Christians, I mean, particularly since justice is the word here, I think of Christians today who are in a land where they are maligned and mistreated and abused. And surely those people are praying God to bring justice but they don't always see justice, at least not in the way that they perceive God would answer the prayer to bring justice. But sometimes God's answer to those prayers are much on a much larger scale than they are even praying. For example, a hundred years ago, you would be hard-pressed to find Christians in China 
Sure, there were pockets of them scattered here and there. And surely there were persecuted Christians there. And surely they prayed for God to bring justice and answer their prayers. But it didn't necessarily come about the way that they had prayed. Instead, God was doing something different. Do you know that it is estimated that there are more Christians in China today than in the United States? Is that God bringing justice? I think it is. I think that's God answering prayers. I think that's God working behind the scenes to bring about not just the transformation of a few unjust people, but the transformation of a nation. Who knows what China will look like a hundred years from now? And so the change is often incremental and the justice that God brings is often gradual and yet you and I, we want to see some action now. Listen to how Peter describes this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. He says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In other words, God's timetable is not only different than yours, but the way that he brings about the answer to your prayers is different than you have in mind much of the time. When it says he will respond speedily, I think that means unlike the unjust judge, he is, he is ready and responding to you. He, you do not have to uh, wear him down. But there are other factors involved that often prevent us from seeing the answers to those right away. The silence of God is not the indifference of God. And rather than be discouraged that our prayers are not being answered, Jesus tells us to persist in those prayers. Much like this widow seeking justice, We are to be persistent as we come before the throne. Not because God is like the judge, but because God is nothing like the judge. Jesus tells us that we are to pray and not lose heart because the one to whom we pray is faithful and he is good and he loves us. And when you pray and you do not see anything change, do not lose heart because your God is at work. Now the question is, do you believe this? Do you believe that God is at work year after year as you pray for that one family member, as you ask God to deliver you from that one sin, as you Ask Him to sanctify you and to make you a blessing to others in this area, in that area, and to be used there and here. Do you believe that God is at work? Or 
do you have the tendency to lose heart? And I think that's why Jesus concludes this teaching with verse 8, at the end of verse 8, where he says, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's how he concludes this parable. When the Son of Man returns, is he going to find a people who were persistently praying for the will of God as it is in heaven down on earth? Or is he going to find a bunch of people who have lost heart and didn't believe that God was at work? Faith is trusting in the things that you cannot see. Faith is believing that the promises of God are true. Will He find faith in you when He returns? Will He find someone who perseveres in prayer even when it seems like God is nowhere to be found? Will the Son of Man find faith on earth? Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time. We thank You for the reminder that You are at work in us, that You are at work in this community, that You are at work in this nation, that You are at work in this world. And rather than us recoiling at all of the evil we see around us, rather than us surrendering and giving up and throwing in the towel, we are to press in even further and pray even more persistently and be like this widow who was persistent in her requests. And we know, Lord, that the one to whom we pray is not like the unjust judge, but one who is totally loving and merciful and committed to our good and His glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.